where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. She's just one of those students who you really enjoy working with because they just are so passionate and it kind of bleeds off to everybody else, right? Like, so it's really nice to have somebody around who's absolutely into it, like loves it, knows what they want to do. You just heard the voice of Meredith Snow talking about Haley Omiso, a master's student in UM's program in anthropology. On Confluence, we like to highlight graduate student accomplishments. In this episode, we celebrate Haley as winner of this year's Best in Conference Award at GradCon, for a poster presentation in humanities and social sciences. Open to all graduate students, GradCon is hosted by UM's Graduate and Professional Student Association, providing an opportunity for students to present their research and creative activity and compete for awards in five categories. Haley won her award for her paper, Identifying Skeletal Trauma Markers Associated with Intimate Partner Violence, a technical forensic study with social and political implications for how we understand the impact of domestic violence on communities. Haley finished her master's here at UM and is heading on to a PhD in anthropology, where she'll work on an intersection of topics highly salient to Native communities, missing and murdered Indigenous women, and the repatriation of human remains from anthropological collections. We talk about these pressing questions, as well as her educational journey from the Blackfeet Nation to UM, where she has already completed undergraduate degrees in biology and anthropology in addition to her master's and will complete the trifecta with a PhD. Welcome to Confluence, where the river is always with us. Welcome to Confluence, Haley. Thank you. Uh, on our podcast, we love to celebrate graduate student accomplishment. In your case, it's so good to have you and celebrate your recent victory at GradCon. Yeah. I got to see your poster presentation, which was really fun. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about how that project evolved and, and especially what was it like to do a presentation at GradCon? Yeah. So um, when I started my graduate program, I actually didn't plan on doing a thesis. I first planned on doing a portfolio, and then I was going to do a professional paper. And then for one of my classes, we kind of had to do a research project using databases. And after I had done that, I was like, well, I mean, I already have all most of my information here, so I might as well turn this into a thesis. So my work started with Keith Biddle, who did this project previously. And so he's helped me out a lot through this whole journey, for sure. So we looked at fracture patterns associated with intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And it was important to me because I was trying to do most of my work in this graduate program, focusing on how I can help missing and murdered Indigenous women and, you know, just Indigenous people in general. And so when Keith did his study first, he couldn't get any Native American samples. And so that kind of created this bias a little bit in his results. And so I kind of took that upon myself of, well, you know, maybe since I'm a Native person, I can try and get some of these Native samples that I was able to. So I went with the Arizona Trauma Registry and I was able to get their data to get a lot of these Native samples. 
And it did turn out that Native American women were leading in these IPV cases and the fracture patterns that I was looking at, which is the zygomatico-maxillary complex. So if we have listeners, not yes. visual, but you would yes. sort of talk about zygomatical be coming from the eye so down the, to the cheekbone. It's the zygomatic bone, which is your cheekbone. Yeah. And the breakage occurs on those articulation sites to your frontal bone, so your forehead bone, and then to your temporal bone, which goes towards your ear, yeah. and then towards your maxilla, towards your nose. You keep going technical, but we'll just translate. Yeah. Right? So, but that <laughs> yeah. was beautiful. You know, you kind of caught that area. So this would be a punch or a blow to the head. Yes. Um, from the side or the front, but you know, so you're you're. This is all ex post facto. In other words, these weren't necessarily identified at the time or connected at the time yeah. with domestic violence. Yeah. So I kind of did those frequencies to see if that it's ZMC for short that had the highest frequency in these cases. But I did get a lot of. Uh, kind of weird results because of the fractures that are around that complex that could have been ZMC, but it kind of also goes with the people that entered the data in first mm. and not being technical if it was ZMC or, you know. General what, area. Yeah, general yeah. area. And so that might be more toward the nose or lower. Yep, orbital floor is a lot of what I looked at too. So I guess my little step-off break right here is an orbital floor from where I got punched by a rugby player. Yeah. <laughs> if I if I if they did expex post facto, I would have to have a note in my little <laughs> rugby player. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so they knew. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Not intimate uh, but you really can add both male and female to be, as a cross comparison, right? Yeah. And so what I found was that they did have similar frequencies in those fracture patterns, but I saw a lot more mandibular fractures for males, which is basically what I interpreted was more of brawls between male to male rather than IPV, which would be more of that. And why would that cheek. be the case? Why would it be more, more likely to break your jaw in a brawl? So the way I interpreted it was in a brawl, you know, they go for the mandibular angle to get the person down. Mm -hmm. Rather, in an IPV situation, they go more for the mid-face because it's more demeaning, mm. dehumanizing to the women because it would, you know, cause bruising, um, black eyes, stuff like that. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Well, so not exactly the most uplifting topic, but super yeah. important, super <laughs> yes. important. And I mean, the, the you mentioned for for listeners um, who maybe not are not familiar, but... The Missing and, and Murdered Indigenous Women, MMIW for short, very important movement to raise visibility because it's not just that it's happening, but it's also there's not public discussion about it or there hasn't been until the movement kind of has raised it to visibility. And so now this is about, you know, making, putting pressure politically, right? Putting pressure on sheriff's departments and police units and criminal and, you know, FBI databases to focus on these uh, uh, cases, which are many of them are still unsolved, right? So is that a good summary of why it's important, you know, in the community? Yeah, for sure. So one of the cases I wanted to talk about that um, is really important to me is the Jermaine Charlo case, where she um, has been missing for a while now. Um, and she was taken just right from downtown Missoula was the last place she was seen. Um, and they haven't found her or her remains yet, but they think that it was her partner. And so um, I think that it's important to have that training of, you know, if they were to find her, does she exhibit this kind of fracture pattern? Yeah. What are the, yeah, what are the details that would bring us back to a forensic case to mm -hmm. really lock down what happened to her? 
and tell a story. Yeah. So yeah. I think, yeah, looking at those fracture patterns, if she had fracture patterns, yeah. um, is important as well as for like emergency room protocols too. If someone was to come in, um, exhibiting these fracture types, um, but then the woman is the not woman reporting is, and she's just saying that she fell. Yeah. She fell on a, you know, fell on the staircase yeah. or, you know, any of the ways that, because of course the trauma of, of being a victim of mm-hmm. domestic abuse often leads to underreporting. Yes. I hate to be so obvious, but I'm just making sure listeners kind yeah, of no, capture sure. the, the full context. of Yeah. What, of and what that's a lot of what I talk about in my paper as well. Um, I even compared accidental fractures as well to my results and so I did see more accidental fractures are more in the the limbs yeah. rather than the face. There are, you know, a high frequency for the face, but it was more of like back, um, you know, arms, legs right, right. rather than and the maybe, specific complex. Yeah, and maybe both, right? I mean, you yeah. might have multiple injuries yeah, in a yeah. fall, whereas in domestic violence, it might just be the, yeah. the ZMC. Yes. <laughs> I'm an insider now, right? I can yeah. Say um, well, so there's uh, several things that you said early on about your, your path to research that I want to come back to just because they're really important to this podcast and what we try to kind of celebrate. For listeners who are not familiar, master's programs will often have several routes to completion. And you talked about those different, you know, the professional paper route. There are, you know, technical professional degrees here where you can just do coursework and you're doing technical yeah. coursework and you meet certification standards. But you chose this third path because you found a research project that inspired or, or, you know, gave you passion to kind of go for it and, and, and mm-hmm. follow it further, which we love to hear, right? Because it's really one of the engines of a great research university is people yeah. like you who <laughs> get the research bug. And you've gotten it so much that now you're heading off to a PhD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? So tell us a little bit about that. Why, when did you make that choice and, and what are you going to go do uh, in your PhD? I guess I'll start from, I guess, the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so when I graduated high school... I had always kind of had that interest in forensics. And so I started my freshman year here in 2015 in the forensic anthropology department. And I realized I needed a little bit more. I wanted to do more, I don't want to say hard science, but more like anatomy and physiology stuff. We can and say so, like foundational science. I yes, know while you're avoiding science. hard, yeah. you don't want the anthropology <laughs> yeah. professors to be mad at you, right? But, yeah. <laughs> but it's foundational, like get, get the physiology, get the anatomy, yes. get the biology. Yes. Yeah. And so my, I think it was my sophomore year here, I decided to add on a minor and I was going to do criminology. And then I found out that's still not what I wanted, but I still wanted to do forensics. And so I dropped the minor and I added on human biology. And so I started double majoring in human bio and forensics. No big deal. Just uh, no big deal. added a whole it was just the hardest science thing in my major. Life, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And I also had my first son my freshman year. Oh, too. wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually listening to Annie Belcourt's um, her episode yeah. before I came in here to kind of yeah. get an idea. And it's crazy like how much we have uh, a similar path because my mom and my f- brothers also moved over here with me <laughs> when, when I started school here. And my wow. mom started her graduate program That's as well. That's fantastic, yeah. And kind of helped out with the baby and stuff. And, and what did she know. do her graduate degree in? She ended up, so she went into business and then she ended up switching to Native American studies. And so she just graduated with her master's and. Native American studies. Fantastic. Yeah. 
So from the other university. Yeah, she we, switched. She yeah, jumped we won't, ship. We won't talk about yeah. it. We won't even name it. But uh, no, that's a great story. And I mean, first of all, again, listeners, go check out the Annie Belcour episode if you haven't. It's one of my favorites. She's yeah, an she's incredible great. presence. And, and, yeah. and it would be like in the 30s, episode 30-something. 30 yeah. Um, so I'm glad you connected with that story. And, and I think, yeah, that story that you're telling about, you know, from Browning, you did take some coursework at Blackfeet Community College, yes? Yes. Yeah. Yep, so I'm also from the Blackfeet Reservation. I grew up there. And so I lived there when I was younger, and then my family kind of moved around because my mom was in college, so was my dad. And then after my parents split up, we went back to Browning. And so I was there from first grade through high school. And so while I was completing my senior year in high school, I was also taking courses at Blackfeet Community College. And so just kind of getting some of those gen eds out of the way. So I sure. got to do my writing 101 there, which was nice. And Super, super important as a transition, as a, yeah. as a bridge. You know, uh, just so happens that tomorrow the tribal colleges and universities presidents are going to be on campus oh, wow. tomorrow and Friday. And it's such an important relationship between, you know, University of Montana and the TCUs. Mm-hmm. All the TCUs that offer two-year degrees, but then also Salish and Community, uh, Kootenai College, where we're w- now working on some cooperative bridge graduate degrees, right? So yeah. it's such an important resource, educational resource, that we're trying to open up and expand for all of our Native students across the yeah. state. I mean, what you just described is the ideal, right? That you yeah. get a bridge, you take a couple of courses, you get your feet mm-hmm. wet, and you get interested, and then you and then you come to a mountain campus maybe yeah. later. Yeah, for sure. And it's definitely a hard transition, I mean, coming from a reservation school and then going, coming to a city mm. yeah. <laughs> and a big university. But I feel like I definitely have found my way throughout these years. I'm learning more about who I am as a person, as an indigenous person being here on this campus because I kind of dealt with, you know, I'm a lighter skin native. And so it's like the saying, you know, being too white for the res, but then being too res for the white. Mm, (laughs) And so that's a lot of what I've dealt with. But I definitely feel being here on this campus, I've definitely found more of who I am as an indigenous person. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. And and it's not an easy road, right? I mean, it, it is a hard road. So but good for you for your resilience and your, and, and of course, you know, as you are saying about Annie, you know, that she has a very similar story and she's this wonderful model. You're a role model, right? That, and that's, that's <laughs> what we're trying to elevate a little bit that, you know, now you're going on to, to get a PhD, the yeah. highest degree that we offer. It's exciting. Yeah. 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 It is very exciting. So I guess kind of going back, <laughs> circling back around to my undergrad, so I think it was in 2017, one of my relatives and classmates, Ashley Heavy Runner Loring, went missing on the Blackfeet Reservation. Mm. And so that kind of pushed me more into going into forensics as well. And like I said, the anatomy and physiology side of things too, because I wanted to learn those skills of being able to recognize a burial and how to do like the field work side of things. And then as I got into my graduate program, now I'm kind of learning the lab side of things. And as I move into my PhD, now I'm trying to, you know, learn the DNA side of things so I can kind of have this more well-rounded skill set, I guess, under my belt so yeah. that I can, you know, help those yeah. families. And so your ultimate goal would be to, to continue to work in law enforcement or in, in public sphere, public, uh, well, I mean, I, obviously police work, but yeah. at the state agency level, what, what do you imagine as your kind of outcome? I mean, I don't think we really have a, posi- a position back home that you know, where I would technically fit under. And so I know that they started, they had one position for just one person that was 
solely working on the MMIW cases, but I don't know if they still have that. And so I would just kind of, you know, be a resource wherever yeah. I can kind of fit, you know? Yeah, 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 find a way to fit it in. Well, so tell me a little bit more about your your research itself. DNA extraction is kind of one technique that you're going to start working on yeah. with your advisor, Meredith Snow, who kind mm-hmm. of specialized in, in that. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Why why that interest and what, what does it allow us to learn? Yeah. So like we were talking about earlier, it is a little bit of a controversial topic, but I think it is important to have people that can do this, especially an indigenous person to help, you know, when there are indigenous remains that pop up. So basically you'd be extracting DNA from from the remains, and then you would have to compare it to living members in order to make that connection. So match, yeah. Yeah. And I think it would be beneficial to have a database that just the tribes can oversee themselves rather than like 23andMe and Ancestry.com where, you know, you kind of don't know where your information goes after that. Yeah. Well, speaking of controversial, right, there's yeah. been so much just in the last year or two about what happens to that information and how it gets aggregated. Yeah. Uh, law enforcement has been using it to f- uh, solve cold cases. Yeah. People have been using it to sort of mine their ancestry uh, or, or, or make connections, especially if they are adopted. Yeah. But that data is kind of, it's in a private mm-hmm. sphere and it's a way. So your, your idea is that the tribe would then have a little bit more control over yeah. the database. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, w- and w- what's the controversy side of it? So it's more... I mean, everything you're saying, in other words, just seems kind of like, yeah, well, that could be really great technique. Yeah. See, so when I present this to tribal members, though... We also have to take in consideration the cultural side of things. So like I was saying, picking and poking at our ancestors, you know, I don't really look at it that way, but trying to find the best way so that they can rest, so that their souls can rest. And a lot of tribes and a lot of tribal members don't really believe in disrupting these remains, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, some of these remains weren't even meant to be dug up in the first place, but... There are instances where, you know, back in the day, there were people that find skulls and then they're just like, oh, hey, (laughs) a skull, cool. I'm going to take it home and like put it on my shelf. Treat it like an object. Yeah, exactly. And and like like an object for a museum, which in fact many of them were. Yeah. um, Rather than treating them with dignity and respect. Yeah. It's a human culture. Yeah. And so that's an ugly part of anthropology's history going all the way back to the 19th century when the field grew went around the world that forensic anthropologists, but, you know, cultural anthropologists were pulling mm-hmm. remains, obviously cultural objects, but human bodies, that seems yeah. to be a whole nother level of ethical problems. So, yeah. that, so we have these remains. And then the question is now that they already are here, what do we do? What are we to do with them now? Yeah, yeah. And how are we going to get them back to their people and to their families? And so that's kind of where I was trying to come from as I can be that person yeah. to kind of take on that role, mm-hmm. even though it is controversial. I th- definitely think it is something that we need to start talking about because especially for my generation and the generations after me and these recent issues of, you know, MMIW and the residential school remains all coming up. Yeah. I definitely think we need to have a plan in place for that. Yeah. And I think, I think the fact that there are prominent now, the secretary of the interior, the U S poet laureate are both native American women. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's helped a ton because it's brought to national attention, some of these issues so that Mm -hmm. we're seeing now the department of the interior is actually requiring 
inventories and discussions of the boarding school era. Yeah. And so it's the first time our federal government has actually taken seriously at the national level that this mm -hmm. has to be addressed, right? So, yeah. it's, so it's, it's one of our national embarrassments, right? It's a, it's a deep shame that people have, you know, repressed. And yeah. so, you know, this, this discussion at least brings it to the surface and yeah. we can start talking about it. Yeah. So that's kind of why I'm trying to like push this along a little bit to like, you know, what are we to do now? Yeah. I think we need to have a plan in place. Although, too, I think we should also acknowledge the cultural side of things, too. I definitely think there are, there is a time and place for everything. There is, like, a full process we'd have to go through, like, ceremonial things as well as the scientific things, too. So, that, that's really important. So ceremonial meaning finding a, a meaningful way to engage Doing with... Doing this in the right way. Yeah, yeah, with tribes so that they can actually bring that that soul to rest, like mm -hmm. offer some peace to yeah. that soul and, and the families. Yeah. Yeah. So even though we have to go through these, you know, I don't want to say super destructive processes because it's not really that destructive trying to take the DNA out, but it is, you know, taking some of the bone dust. That's yeah. technically what it is. And so we're also trying to find other ways to, to come up with non-invasive techniques that we can do this as well. Hmm. Say more about that. <laughs> I mean, just some of the studies that I've read. So like taking stuff off of the tooth. Okay. Which people don't really look at that as invasive. Huh. They see it as less invasive. Yeah. Because it's, you're not, you're not changing the skeletal structure. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. So things like that. It's so interesting, the language we, that you, extraction, mm -hmm. invasion, disruption, yeah. even the language we use to talk about it suggests the taboo and associated with disturbing remains. Yes. And that's fairly universal, right? I mean, yeah. people don't like their ancestors' bones yeah. to be disrupted, right? Yeah. And so it's it's treating that with respect and recognizing mm -hmm. the, the sacred quality of, of the human life at yeah. the core of it. For sure. Yeah, what a delicate balance. You're, you're, yeah, you're, I know. So it's just trying to find a way to do this all correctly and, you know, like I said, go through a whole process. It's not just, you know, start drilling into bone. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's that not what I'm trying to do. That would just be replicating this bad problem of the past, right? Yeah, but just exactly. try to do it thoughtfully. And, and Well, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm, you know, I can't think of a better person to be trying to take this oh, on thanks. than you. And, and thank you for picking it up. Yeah. And, you know, having Meredith on my side, who's, like I said, our main DNA person in our department, she's super knowledgeable on all of this. And so she's going to be teaching me how to, you know, kind of go about this. And then I've also decided to also go home and talk to, you know, my elders about, you know, if it's okay that I do this and yeah. like how, you know, how to kind of go about all of this as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Tell us a little bit about your experience of just being in person at a conference, uh, especially after the pandemic. Oh yeah. So it was kind of, well, I guess the second time I presented a poster, but this was the first time I actually presented on like my thesis work, more, I guess, research that I've done for this project. So it was great. And I had all my friends around. They were also um, presenting their work as well. And yeah, it was nice. And then my parents were there to support me as well as feel my friends too. Yeah, I, I was, I got to talk to your parents a little bit there and, and that was awesome. You know, that's yeah. not something we see all the time at grad con. So mm -hmm. what was that like having this sort of family support network? Yeah, it's awesome having my family be there like every step of the way with yeah. me. Yeah. How many times did you have to present your poster? Um, like how many times you have to talk about it? To someone? Did you keep <laughs> track? Was it 15, 20? 
I don't think it was that much. I kind of would just like start talking and then someone else would walk up yeah. and then I would kind of like repeat myself a little bit and just kind of fill everyone in on <laughs> yeah. on my work and everything. Part of what we do on Confluence is to try to kind of talk a little bit about demystify things, right? So yeah. if someone hasn't done a poster presentation, you know, you, you sit in front yeah. of a poster with all your data, right? And then, yeah. but the idea is that you're supposed to be so in command of it that you can just talk about it in a yeah. kind of fluid way. Yeah. So it's really good practice about distilling your research down and telling a clean story about what you discovered and, yeah. and allow and opening up people to kind of engage with the data. Yeah. So I for sure had this whole spiel, uh, you know, written out practice before I went in there. And then I ended up just feeling so comfortable where I could just, you know, people would come up and ask me questions and then I would answer them and just, you know, kind of take them all through my project. So it was really nice. Yeah. And that's the value of the preparation because then you can throw it away and just yeah, be yeah. present <laughs> in the conversation. Yeah. yeah well, you sure. did an amazing job. It Thank was great you. talking to you at, at that conference. But of course, you won on the basis of your video presentation, which was um, obviously impressed the judges. So yeah. congratulations yeah, on that. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us, and thank you for joining us on Confluence. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> if you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www umt.edu slash grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. And I'll was that. Mm-hmm. And say it, and say it, From and Pride it. and Prejudice. <laughs>